So, you never know what to expect when I preach, right? <clears throat> we're going to play a quick game of Simon Says, all right? But we're going to call it Shay Says, and the game starts right now, okay? So, everybody stand up. Okay, if you just stood out, up, you're out, okay? Because Shay did not say stand up. <laughs> Some of you guys got it. Some of you actually stayed seated. Okay, Shay Says... Shay says, uh, take your right hand and touch your right ear. Okay? Shay says, take your left hand and touch your left ear. Okay, game over. All right? So, you've got ears, right? All right. So, Shema Yal. Uh, the word Shema in the Old Testament is the word for hear. It's the word for listen up. And, uh, and it's used in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. Uh, there's a phrase that Jesus uses over and over again in his teachings that goes like this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, so we have already established the fact that you have ears. So I'm expecting you to hear, but not just to hear, also to shema y'all, listen up. Pay attention to what is being said. So let me pray for us, and then we will uh, get into the message. Thank you for the hope that is in Jesus, and thank you for your word, and I ask that you would teach me this morning from your word, but that you would also uh, give us ears to hear what you have to say in the scriptures today, and it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So there was a lapsed Catholic and his wife and a priest and a rabbi who walked into a bar. <clears throat> sort of sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? All right? So it's actually not. It's actually the uh, premise of a new TV show that is out right now. I don't know if you have heard of it or if you have seen it, but there is a show that has been out about two months right now called Living Biblically. Has anybody here heard of the song? All right, anybody seen an episode, I mean, not of the song, seen an episode of the show? All right, so the premise is that there is this writer who has just had some devastating things happen in his life, his best friend died. And then he found out right after that that his wife was pregnant. Now that wasn't devastating, that was exciting, but you know there's just a lot going on in his life and he decides that uh <clears throat> that because of everything going on that he's going to just change things up. He wants to be a better man. And he decides that he is going to live his life 100% by the Bible. He is going to live biblically. And I saw, I saw this being advertised, and I thought, you know, I need to at least check it out. Um, it's actually not a bad show. It deals with faith issues, and it's probably worth you checking out, if you watch television at all, um, if for no other reason than to see how a major network deals with faith, faith issues, but it also might give you some conversation starters in your home or around the water cooler at work or wherever. So Living Biblically, it comes on, on Monday nights at 9.30 p.m., and <clears throat> it's worth checking out. So we're going to read about a guy today in the Scriptures who spent his whole life 
trying to live biblically. And we're going to kind of listen in in Mark chapter 12 to a conversation that he has with Jesus that turned his life upside down. And maybe, just maybe, that conversation will be used to turn your life upside down as well. So it's a passage that succinctly sums up the teachings of Jesus, and it's Mark chapter 12. And let's read it together starting in verse 28. Or let me read it for you as you see it. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, meaning Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, if you're looking at the back of your bulletin, you will notice that um, it probably looks a little bit different kind of outline than you usually have. I have not given you um, any kind of fill-in-the-blank answers or anything. What I've given you is a bunch of questions because I want you to sort of understand how I go about pondering a passage of Scripture. And when I look at a passage of Scripture like this one, I just start asking questions. And these are some of the questions that kind of came to mind as I began studying this passage. Asking questions of a text is a great way to ponder Scripture and think about it and meditate on it. So I encourage you, as you are doing your Bible reading, Ask questions of the text. And then if, if, if you don't know the answers to the questions, do some research on your own or call Joe. Joe would love to answer all of your questions. Um, you, can even, you can even call me. I would be glad to help you as you seek to ponder Scripture. So first question is this that we're going to talk about is what is the context for this conversation? that Jesus had with this scribe. So it is right after the triumphal entry. So we're coming up on, we are, we're at the beginning of Passion Week, and as Jesus is in Jerusalem, <clears throat> he has three different conversations with three different groups of people. In chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, he has a conversation with the chief priests, with the scribes, and with the elders, and they ask him, a question. They are challenging his authority. They're really trying to trip him up and are looking for an excuse 
to just get rid of him. So then in chapter 12, verses 12 through 17, he has another conversation with the Pharisees and a group of people known as the Herodians. And again, they are looking for a way to trip him up. They're asking him trick questions and, uh, because they just want to get rid of him. He is causing big-time trouble for them and for the religious establishment. And then in chapter 12, verses 18 through 27, he has a conversation with the Sadducees. And again, they're just trying to trip him up. They are asking him a trick question, and they want to see him mess up. So <clears throat> three conversations with people who are trying to challenge and to trap Jesus. And then the scribe comes up to Jesus. And he asked, asked Jesus this question. Now, let me ask, here's the next question that I want to pose. What do we know about the scribes? Who are these people that the New Testament talks about as the scribes? So just a, a couple of things about scribes that you may or may not already know. One is they were students of the law. Now, when I say the word law, I'm not meaning like they were lawyers and they, you know, study for a bar exam. When I refer to the law, I'm referring to the Older Testament. They were students of the law. They were teachers of the law. Probably the most famous um, scribe that you guys would be aware of is a guy by the name of Ezra in the Older Testament. He was a scribe and a teacher of the law. They were interpreters of the law. They were transcribers of the law and preservers of the scriptures. And they, these are the guys that spent time copying and recopying very, very meticulously the scriptures. In fact, we are very, very indebted to the scribes because it is largely because of the work of the scribes that we have this book because they copied and made cop lots, of, lots of copies of the manuscripts of the older Testament. They are often re, um, mentioned in the same sentence with the Pharisees, um, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, not all Pharisees were scribes, and not all scribes were Pharisees, but they had a lot in common. In Matthew chapter 23, you, you may remember um, this text where Jesus is is uh, giving a bunch of his woes, and he says, woe to the scribes and the Pharisees. And he had a lot of condemning things to say about them, and he lumped them together in the same sentences. So that's question number one. What do we know about the scribes? Question number two is this. Was the scribes' question meant to be a trap or a trick question because that's what has just been happening with all three of these prior conversations they were trying to trick him and to trap him and to um, get him in trouble so what was the was the scribes question here in this passage when he says in verse 28 which commandment is the most important that meant to be a trick okay great question <clears throat> I don't believe this scribe was like the others. I think he was genuinely interested in what Jesus had to say. Notice what it says um, in verse 28. Seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, what is 
what commandment is the most important? I think his, his interest was really genuine. It was different than the other people. He wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. Now remember, this is a guy who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. He spent lots and lots of time in the Word of God, writing it and rewriting it. And so he knew his Bible. And yet, here's a guy that knew the Bible really well, and yet he still wanted to learn. He was what I would call a lifelong learner. And there's a lesson for us there. Because it doesn't matter how well you might know your Bible, there is always something that you can learn. Continue to be a student of the Bible. Verses 29 through 31. Okay, why did Jesus, when he answered the scribe's question, why did he pick out these commandments out of all of the commandments of the Tanakh? All right, so here's the first thing that I want to say about that question. And you guys can anticipate what that question is. What is the Tanakh? Okay, so the Tanakh is the way that the Jewish people referred to the Older Testament. I'm just giving you guys a little bit of, of, of Jewish thinking right here, all right? The, the Tanakh is the way that the Jews referred to the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's an acronym. The word T stands for the Torah or the teachings of Moses. The word, the, the letter N stands for Nevi'im or what is called the prophetic writings. And then the word K stands for the Ketuvim or the other writings in there. So you've got the T, the N, and the K. It's an acronym that spells Tanakh. And that's the way that they referred to the Older Testament or to the Hebrew Scriptures. And so Jesus' answer to the question was this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why would Jesus have, out of all of the commandments, all the verses in the Tanakh, why would he have chosen those? All right, I'm glad you asked. All right, so you may, you may or may not know this, but this is a very, very famous passage of Scripture. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it is referred to as the Shema. It's the beginning verses of what is called the Shema. All right, now the Jewish people were instructed to say the Shema in the morning and in the evening, and before they went to bed. So this is a passage of Scripture that Jesus, from the time that he was just a little bitty baby, would have been saying at least three times a day as he was growing up. This was probably the first passage of Scripture that he committed to memory. The Shema is so famous that... Do you guys know what a mezuzah is? A mezuzah is a little box that goes 
at, on, on the doorpost of the entrance to a Jew's home. And we've got one at our house. If you were to ever stop by our house, you would see a mezuzah on the doorpost of our home. And when, when you, inside that little box is the Shema, the, the verses from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, you've heard about uh, the Orthodox Jews who wear like phylacteries. That's what it's called. They put these boxes on their head or they wear them on their wrist. Okay. Inside those boxes is the Shema. This is probably the most famous passage of Scripture in the Older Testament. And, and the Jews were commanded to repeat this over and over again. Morning, noon, night. It was supposed to be the last thing that they said before they went to sleep. It was supposed to be the last thing that they said before they drifted off into death. It is said at every gathering at the temple. It is the final prayer that is said during Yom Kippur. So it is a very, very famous passage of Scripture. Um, and the Jews were being reminded to say this again and again and again. Now why? Why were they being reminded to say this over and over and over again? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is one or is the only one. See, the Jewish people lived in a polytheistic society, meaning a, a culture that had many gods. And this was a monotheistic declaration that they were to say and remind themselves of each day. The Lord is our God. It's not those other gods out there. The Lord is our God. He is the one and only God. And this was their pledge of allegiance that they would say day in and day out. A lot of you guys grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance, didn't you? Back in the day, you know, when we used to have to say it in school before they took it out of the schools, okay? The Pledge of Allegiance was to remind us every day of our allegiance to flag and country. This was the Jews' Pledge of Allegiance that they would say multiple times a day to remind them that they followed one God and one God only in the midst of a culture that had many gods. Now question, do we live in a polytheistic culture or a, an atheistic culture? What do you think? That is a question worth pondering. And to ask, is Deuteronomy chapter 6, is the Shema, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Is that, are those verses still relevant today in our country, in our culture? I think we can all agree that the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Do we love the Lord our God with, here's the key word. This is the one that struck me as I was looking at this passage, with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all 
my strength. Is that the way that we love the Lord? Look, I found that as I was preparing for this message, I was preaching it myself because I, I can't say that I do love the Lord all the time with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are there other gods who are competing for our allegiance, just like there were other gods that were competing for the allegiance of the Jewish people? Just a question worth pondering. Verse 32 says, and the scribes said to Jesus, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What does this scribe's response to Jesus tell us about him? There's a few thoughts. Remember, this, this is a guy who knew his Bible. This is a guy who was trying to live his life biblically. There were 613 commandments in the Older Testament. Of those 613, 365, one for every day of the year, 365 thou shalt nots. I got to believe that it was exhausting trying to obey every single one of those commandments. I got to believe that this scribe was exhausted just trying to, to live biblically. And when Jesus answered his question. You know, Jesus didn't give him a bunch of thou shalt nots. He basically said two things. Love God and love people. He focused on relationships, not on rules. And I, I've just got to believe that when, when the scribe heard that, it was like, he, it was like a, a breath of fresh air to him. It was, it was like this sense of freedom from having to just live out all the laws of the Older Testament, all of the thou shalt nots. It was liberating. It was thirst quenching. It was hope inducing because here's something that I can do. Two, not 613, Love God and love people. J.I. Packer wrote a book a number of years ago called Knowing God. And he said this. He said that Christianity is about a relationship that is calculated to thrill a man's heart. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's a relationship that God has offered us to thrill a man or a woman's heart. Do you guys remember the first time that you were in love? Do you remember? Do you remember the thrill? I just can't wait to see 
that person again. I can't wait to talk to him on the phone. I mean, it was, it's the, th- the goosebumps and the, and the thrill and the shiver that you had when you just anticipated being with that one that you loved so much. Do what? <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> to what extent... To what extent, and I think this is, this is a question that we need to ask ourselves often, to what extent do we find our hearts thrilled by knowing and loving and being in a relationship with God? To what extent do we find our hearts thrilled? I, I think that we need to ask God to recapture our Hearts to turn our eyes away from worthless things, to renew our lives according to His Word, to capture our hearts all over again so that we are thrilled when we have the opportunity to be in the presence of God. And I can't help but think that as Jesus was talking to this scribe, that there wasn't there was a shiver of excitement that just ran up and down his spine because he thought, finally, finally, here is someone who understands the desperation of my own heart. And then verse 34. And then verse 34, where Jesus says this. And when Jesus saw that he, the scribe, had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. All right, so question. What was significant about Jesus' reply to the scribe when he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God? All right, the answer, Amber, is not so much what he said, I think, as much as what he didn't say. Notice what he did not say, okay? He did not say, bingo, because you agree with everything that I have said. Here's your golden ticket. Here is the entrance to the kingdom of God. Now you're one of us. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Of God. Now, Jesus had a way, and when you read through the scriptures, through his teachings, you see this. Jesus had a way of saying things that made people think, that jarred their status quo. He didn't give people the answers that made them feel good about themselves. What would the scribe most likely have thought about what Jesus just said to him. You are not far from the kingdom of God. All right, to borrow a line from the movie Frozen, I think he would have gone like this. Wait, what? Wait, what? What? What are you talking about? Have you ever had one of those wait what moments where you think you know what the other person is going to say, you're anticipating what their answer is going to be, and then it's completely different from what 
the answer really is? This was a wait what moment for the scribe because he, I think he really thought that Jesus was going to say, well done, my man. You are now one of us. It's not what he said. He said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I think the scribe would have said, wait, what do you mean by not far from the kingdom of God? I agree with what you said. I, I try to live biblically. I'm not like those other guys who are trying to trick you and trip you up. Of course I'm in the kingdom of God. That's what I think is going through his mind right there. So I wonder... I just wonder how many people make the assumption, like the scribe did, that they are in the kingdom of God, but they're not in the kingdom of God. I wonder how many people make that assumption. So here's my next question. What is the tipping point how do you go from not far from the kingdom of God to in the kingdom of God? What is the tipping point? That term, the tipping point, was popularized back in the year 2000 by a guy by the name of Malcolm Gladwell when he wrote a book, The Tipping Point, How Little Things Can Make a Big Difference. All right, definition, tipping point. Tipping point is this, the critical point beyond which a significant and often unstoppable effect or change takes place. So what's the tipping point that, that takes you from not far from the kingdom of God, which is also not in the kingdom of God, to being in the kingdom of God? So let, let, me, let me see if I can illustrate this. Check out this illustration right here. All right, so there are those who are far away from the kingdom of God. When I, when I was um, a young man, early high school, I was far away from the kingdom of God. And you guys, you guys remember when you were far away from God. And then I started going to church, and I started hearing about who Jesus was. And, and it got to the point where then I, I was probably a lot closer. I was not far from the kingdom of God. And then there came a point in my life where I was in the kingdom of God. And then there are those who are all in. So I want you to kind of be thinking about where on this spectrum would you find yourself right now. The scribe was not far from the kingdom of God, but he was not in the kingdom of God. So what is the tipping point? The tipping point is a word that you are very, very familiar with, and it's the word faith. It's the word faith. But I'm not sure that we really understand what faith is. So let me, let me tell you what faith is not, okay? Faith is not this feeling of just being close to God. I just feel so close to God. That's not faith. 
Faith is not a feeling of being close to God. It may include that, but it is not that. Faith is not a blind leap where you put aside common sense, where you discard science and you ignore the facts. That's not faith. Faith is not a blind leap. Faith is not saying the words to a magic prayer and then going about life as usual. That is not faith. So what is faith? All right, so the, the biblical definition is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and it puts it like this. Faith is the assurance. Faith is the confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I want to give you three words that I think will help to flesh out this whole idea of faith. When we say, put your faith in God, what do we mean? Three words. Trust, risk, and action. Trust, risk, and action. Let me give you one of two illustrations. All right, so... My bride is sitting back over here, and um, 36 years ago, I believed that Linda should be my wife. I believed that she should be my wife, but you know what? That didn't make her my wife, you know? I believed that she should be my wife, but that did not make her my wife. So <clears throat> I took a risk. I spent a lot of money on an engagement ring. <laughs> I was hoping, you know, I spent a lot of money on an engagement ring. I took a bigger risk. I went and I arranged a time to talk to her parents and ask for her hand in marriage. And then I took an even bigger risk. And I asked her to marry me, knowing two things. One, she could say no. And two, if she said yes, then I was saying no to all of the other women who were out there. Not that there was a long line. <laughs> but it was a risk, all right? But even doing all of those things, that didn't make her my wife, did it? She was still not my wife. Then on August 1st, 1981, <clears throat> the way that we refer to that is 8181, I took some intentional action and I committed to her. I vowed to her in front of a preacher of the gospel, family, and a lot of witnesses, and she became my wife. From that day forward, she became my wife. Faith is like that. There's this trust. There's this belief. But then there's this risk that you have to be willing to deal with and then take intentional action. Okay, let me illustrate one other way. I know you've been sitting here thinking, what in the world is that ladder over there? Why is that there? Amber, have you been wondering that? Okay, you saw that ladder and you were thinking, well, somebody just left that standing up. Al, why did you leave a ladder just sitting in the middle of the worship 
center, okay? So, Amber, I'm glad that you are asking that question because I need your help, okay? So, <laughs> so Amber, I want to ask you a question. If I were to tell you, if I were to tell you that on top of that ladder is $10, would you believe me? Yeah? Why? Because she wants the money, okay? And... You know, you've known me a long time. I, I, you know, I don't know that I've really lied to you before. You know, uh, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully you trust me enough so that when I tell you that there is $10 on top of that ladder, you believe me, okay? So there's $10 on top of that ladder. Does that make that $10 yours? No. No, it does not. So what if I were to say to you that you can have that $10, but... You have to get up off of that pew, and you have to walk over to that ladder, and you have to be willing to climb up those steps, even though this is Al's ladder, even though it's a little bit rickety, okay? Are you willing to do that? Okay, thank you. Um, is that $10 yours? No, it's still over there, right? Okay, so, so you believe that the $10 is there. You're willing to take the risk to go get that $10, but as of yet, that $10 is not there. So <clears throat> I want you to get up out of your seat, and I want you to come over here, all right? All right, this is intentional action, all right? Trust. You believe that it's there. You're willing to take the risk. And now you are taking some intentional action. So I want you to climb up there, and let's just see if that $10 really is there. All right, what do you see? And, and theoretically, there's actually $10 in that envelope, okay? Mm -hmm. You can come down. Thanks. <laughs> All right, now open up the envelope. And is there indeed $10? I did not lie to you, okay? Thank you for your help. All right. Trust, belief, risk, action. Scripture says that faith without action is dead. Dead. All right? By the way, I want that $10 back. No. no. <laughs> So, it's hers now. So, what does, what, does, what does this look like for our friend the scribe? Okay? So, he agrees with everything that Jesus says, but is he in the kingdom of God? No. No. He must decide, am I willing, in front of other scribes, in front of the Pharisees, to say about this man, this is the Messiah that Isaiah 53 has been talking about. This is the one that we have been looking for. This is him. And we need to look to him for our salvation and for forgiveness of sins. That's what he needs to be willing to do. But even, even just be, having the willingness to do it doesn't move him from not far to in the kingdom of God because he has to take some intentional action. And he has to actually... Follow Jesus. 
and make his confession that Jesus is the Messiah and then obey his words and look to him for salvation and abide in the scriptures, not just transcribe the scriptures and find joy in his relationship with God and delight in prayer and serve him and love him and enjoy the forgiveness and the hope and the love and the mercy that Jesus offers. And when he does that, he will move from not far from the kingdom of God to in the kingdom of God. So remember how I asked you to be thinking about where you are on this diagram. All right, so I want you to think about what your next step is. What is the next step that you are willing to take if if you are far away, if you say that you are far away, would you be willing to just pick up the Bible and start reading it some? Would you be willing to have a conversation with someone that loves you and knows the Scripture? Would you be willing just to start asking questions like the scribe asked? If you are not far are you willing to stop trusting in your own goodness? Are you willing to confess your sin? Are you willing to repent and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord alone and begin to love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength? If you are in, if you are in, Bible speaks of different types of in. The Bible talks about the type of those who are barely in. Scripture defines it this way. They are barely escaping the flames of hell. And then the Bible also talks about those who are experiencing fullness of joy. Where are you between those two? And where do you want to be? What risks are you willing to take? What intentional acts of obedience are you going to pursue? You need to decide, if you are in, you need to decide if you want to live a life that Paul describes this way in Philippians chapter 3. He says this, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And get this, this is what he says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not just in, but all in. Every step of the way takes faith Trust, taking some risks, but then intentional action to draw closer to the kingdom and closer 
to God? What kind of risks are you willing to take? I want to close us up this, uh, this morning a little bit different than we usually close. So I mentioned to you that this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is, was the Jewish Pledge of Allegiance. It's known as the Shema. It was the Jewish Pledge of Allegiance. Are you aware? Are you aware that there is a Christian Pledge of Allegiance? And many of you have said it before. It was, it was adopted by the early church somewhere around the year 140 A.D., so it's been around a long time. And it's known as the Apostles' Creed. All right. Shay says, stand up. All right. So a fellow by the name of Matt Chandler said this. When the early church recited the Apostles' Creed, it was simultaneously their greatest act of rebellion against the cultural narrative of their day, and it was simultaneously their greatest act of allegiance. Let's say together, as our pledge of allegiance, the Apostles' Creed as we close out. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That is a robust pledge of allegiance for those of us who call ourselves believers. Do you believe what you say you believe? Hear, O Ridgecrest. The Lord is God. The Lord is the only God. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. You're dismissed. <laughs>